on ABC Radio. This is The Big Fish. Ahoy there. Welcome aboard to another episode of The Big Fish. Great to have you with us. Put the kelic down, throw a line over and relax for the next hour of fun and fishing. Coming up on The Big Fish, our man on the Apple Isle, Greg French, bushwalker, writer, fly fisherman extraordinaire, on the fight to save one of the world's great, last accessible wilderness fisheries from overdevelopment. It's all coming up on The Big Fish. It's the big fish and our man on the Apple Isle, Greg French, fly fisherman, writer, raconteur. Welcome back to the program. Good day, Scott. Great to be here, as always. Now, the brand new book is uh, expected on the 25th of July. Are you like the uh, expected father, Wild Heart of Tasmania? Tell us about this latest work. Uh, well, I've been working on this one for a few years. I wanted to do a um, sort of a living history of the Western Oaks. Um, and so it's got a, a, a fairly big fishing theme through it, simply because nearly all the characters that used the Western Lakes over the last, you know, 150 years at least, um, were all fishermen. But um, basically I wanted to give a story about the, the historic huts and tracks and the people who ended up preserving the land and also wanted to like really home in on this idea of multi-generational attachment to land. Um, and while I was doing it, um, just by pure coincidence, it turned out that nearly all the key players had this enormously strong attachment to Lake Malbina, which is, you know, sort of under threat from development. So a lot of the story ends up being, you know, more at least heading back to Lake Malbina. But there's so many threads and overlays to the story. It's basically a collection of short ripping yarns that are sort of all interwoven with underlying themes that occur and reoccur all the way through it. People have been telling me that it's the best thing I've ever wrote. And I'm not, I don't know if that's true. I've got no way of judging that. But what I do know is that it's the book that I put most effort into and put most passion into. So I'm pretty happy with the result, and the reviewers seem to be pretty happy with the result. So I'm happy with it. It's like a lot of threads coming together. I guess a lot of those threads intersect uh, as well because you were also involved heavily in this, this very well thought out plan of management for that uh, heritage listed wilderness area that, that all of the stakeholders agreed on. Were there contacts made during that process? Uh, very definitely. I just visited the Western Lakes way back in 1979 and I went there because David Scholes wrote in Fly Fisher in Tasmania that the place offered the, the feeling of treading unknown paths like the, that of the Explorer. I think that's a pretty reasonable quote. Um, and um, and the reality is that it still offers that, and that's the single biggest attraction for it. The, the fishing is great, it's all class, but much, much more than that is this feeling of getting alone and out there. And it is so easy. By global standards, it's got to be the most easily accessible wilderness on the planet with easily the best wilderness fishing on the planet. So 
That's right. You yeah. don't need you don't need helicopters and float planes and um, you know giant four wheel drives. You just need to be able to wander through the nature's wonderland, don't you? It's it's really easy walking yeah. once you get up the top. You can make it hard by going up some of the uh, the escarpment tracks, which are just so great because you go through dense rainforest and giant trees and and crystal clear streams, and then it gets more sparse and more sparse, and then you get up to the snow gums, and then you get up to the to the the peaty heathy country and and all of those tarns and rivers and lakes and and those granite tours and and it's just an incredible journey to walk up from down low but you can also drive in up high and then walk across can't you uh, i just had an article written in fly life last issue and it was the story of uh, me and a couple of mates doing a 14 day um, trek across right across the western lakes and we did exactly what you said. We just drove up to Lake Mackenzie, right up in that, you know, the Alpine country up there, and then we walked pretty much southwest down to Lake Ina over 14 days. Um, and an interesting thing, like you'd think, it'd take a lot of preparation to plan for a 14-day bushwalk. It didn't really. Um, but um, one thing that's made the whole thing so much easier is this advent of pack rafts. So you can buy yourself a you know, a single-person pack raft now that weighs two kilos, less, less than two kilos. These pack rafts are incredibly durable. You can take them down grade four rapids um, if, if you're brave enough, um, and, but you can take them right across all those big lakes in the Western Lakes. And some of the ones in the southwest um, have become, the understory has become very, very scrubby and getting along some of the shorelines is more difficult than it has been ever before in my lifetime. But you overcome that difficulty, pack rafts, no worries at all. And at two kilos, it's just not a problem to jam them in your backpack. Well, you just leave the bottle of whiskey at home, don't you? <laughs> well, yeah, we just tend to take that with us anyway. <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking with our man on the Apple Isle, Greg French. His new book is uh, set to come out on the 25th of July. I, I noted online there were already uh, people you know, placing pre-orders. It's called Wild Heart of Tasmania. About this, well, it was sort of, um, the catalyst was this fight to save Lake Malbina from uh, fly-in helicopter lodge development. Do you know where it's at at this stage? Yeah, so um, once the developer put in uh, or completed his request for further information from the minister, once he lodged that on that desk, um, the minister had 40 working days to make a decision. But she also had the option of extending that time period, which she did. So the final decision now will be handed down on the uh, 16th of August. We'll just see how it plays out. It's been going for um, the original development application was put in in 2014. So it's, you know, almost a decade long. <laughs> it's been going on. Still no end in sight. Mm. Yeah, look, it's, it's it's one that has a lot of people particularly worried and, and those who want want to look after wilderness. If it's if it's wilderness, it's wilderness, isn't it? We've got plenty of great development in, in Tasmania, lots of, of uh, you know, good accessible stuff like the, uh, the, the sky walk through the forest where thousands of tourists go. But I guess you also need those those wild places to remain wild. Um, we have uh, invited the proponent of the, the fly-in uh, helicopter lodge fishing, uh, helicopter pad being built in that wilderness area. Um, at this stage, he, he's uh, declined to speak to us. So I, I guess we'll just uh, watch uh, what the federal government has to say. Uh, what's some of the uh, commentary around it in Tasmania at the moment? 
I think the, the, most of the commentary is just a way about the complete arrogance that the public submissions were dealt with. Basically, first of all, the proponent pretended that there are only 620-odd submissions when, in fact, there were 5,300-odd. Um, and then in his covering letter to the minister, he just said that the minister didn't have to take any notice of those, any of those submissions because they didn't provide quantitative and qualitative data. But, you know, he never asked for quantitative and qualitative data and it's not required under the Act anyway. So mainly people, I think, are angry. But just one little thing I'd like to point out here with this is that the Western Lakes is a single fishery and the core of it is a wilderness area. It's all easily accessible anywhere from five minutes to, you know, six or seven hours walk. And with managing that area, it stands to reason that you'd have some areas where you allowed, um, you know, minor development and some areas where you'd leave it for self-reliant recreation. And, and because it is a wilderness World Heritage Area, you would leave an area that was largely undisturbed in the middle. And the problem with the way this process for the Malbina thing has been operating is that it does away with all that planning and zoning effectively and just says we will encourage ad hoc development anywhere and everywhere. So it's not as if everybody's completely anti-tourism. That's just a lie. And anybody who's read any of my work would know that I encourage people to come and visit Tasmania and use our fishery as much as anyone possibly can encourage people. Well, to you've do always that. been of that with your guidebooks um, and and also your work in in management w- with fisheries. You've always been of the belief that um, the more people you get to love a region, the more that region is is protected. Is that still your philosophy? It still is my philosophy. Yeah, um, and say so, and developers will sort of turn that round and say, okay. If I'm helicoptering more people out there, that's more people that love the area. But of course, you're destroying it in the same in the same breath. The point is that 95%, 98%, 99%, who knows, of, of everything that we've got is accessible by mechanical access. And it's this one tiny little area that fully 15% of um, licensed anglers want to fish. 15% of them want to fish it, and it accounts for, golly, you know, a fraction of that sort of percentage of the available fishery. So destroying it doesn't actually, you know, making access easy with helicopters doesn't open it up to everyone. Most people can't afford it, and it also destroys the one thing that makes it special, which is that self-reliant um, walking accessible element, that feeling of treading paths like the Explorer. Yeah, and even now you get that feeling, don't you? A few years back, um, Maddie McClellan and I trekked into an amazing rainbow fishery with a beautiful hut and the snow was falling all around us in the, the pine forest and, and the mossy rocks. I, I, you know, just looking out the door, you see this soft snow falling on the fagus, the, the autumn colours and uh, the giant rainbows swimming in that, that particular lake and to walk in there for, for sort of four or five hours carrying everything um, and to be so alone uh, yet so beautiful. It just, um, there's so much of that there for everybody. There, it just doesn't seem right to to get, put yourself in a helicopter and get dumped off and then sit and, I don't know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't sit with the... Well, it, it, it is in a, in a self-reliant recreation zone. There's nothing much self-reliant about play, being flown out to a luxury lodge in a helicopter and hand-served wine and, you know, um, 
no, which is great. I mean, I got no problem. I, I love that sort of thing, but it just doesn't seem to fit that particular location not, there. And there's there's a lot of that sort of stuff. Not in court. There's a lot of that sort of stuff through Tasmania too, isn't there? Hey, what was the fishing like uh, on your fourteen day trek? Uh, it was spectacular. Um, again, people forget the fly life thing and read about it. We we did it mainly as a uh, as, as an unwind, and so when the weather was you know crappy, we didn't worry too much about fishing. We just sat around chatting and going for walks and stuff. But whenever the weather turned it on, which was two two days out of three or three days out of four, um, the fishing was to die for. Like you know, mainly black spinner activity with. Um, trout throwing themselves into the air and taking, you know, single black spinners one metre above the water surface. And then you notice your fish and then you wander down the shore and you just polaroid your fish and stick a fly in front of it. And sometimes they eat it and sometimes they don't. We had That's um, amazing, isn't it? Particularly when they're moving quickly. I was watching some fish in the Western Lakes chasing those and I just had the sun at the right angle uh, over a, a deep wheat bed. And the speed at which these fish would, would, would zip around down deep and then come shooting up through the water column, um, it really gave you an insight into why you'll put your fly where the fish last rose and get no response. Does the water stay shallow and clear? Um, that you, you know, often in a lot of the lakes, you just don't lose sight of your fish. So you can see everything they're doing. This is a bit of a deeper spot, but the, the sun was just right so you could yeah. see really deep. Oh, it's fantastic. And that lake you were at, you know, Lake Neston, I think, uh, with the rainbows in it, that's a massively deep lake. And you can see fish metres below the surface. And when they notice your dry fly, they do that big, slow corkscrew rise up to the top. That's spectacular. Yes, it is. I always, I always, I always strike way too early. I just cannot hang on. I just cannot. I've got to look away. No, join the club. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> um, it's funny how something and- so silly makes us so excited, isn't it? <laughs> Um, and just getting back to that area too, so the, the the two huts there, the one at Lake Meston and the one at um, Junction Lake, they were recently um, re- repaired by the Mountain Huts Preservation Society here in Tasmania, and they, they carried that work out in February. Those huts are absolutely magnificent. Again, that, the craftsmanship done by the Mountain Huts people has to be seen to be believed, and the fireplaces have been restored in them as well. There was a team of people that built them, a team of this guy's mates, but the instigator was a fellow called Dick Reed, and you can read all about this in Wild Heart because um, his story is amazing. He not only built those hearts, but all those walking tracks that underpin um, current um, fishing and bushwalking use of the area, um, they were all built by this one man. Some of those tracks were built in the late 1970s when he was you know, almost 80 years old. And he used to go in on pack horses. He also, just by complete coincidence, happened to know Reg Hall, who is the fellow who built the little hut on Halls Island in Lake Malbina that um, where the attempt at privatisation is happening. And Reg Hall was the the actual father of the Walls Jerusalem National Park. It was his nomenclature in the central walls and beyond that inspired a whole generation of bushwalkers to go and visit that area before there was any Mersey Valley forest road, you know, to make right. access easy. In those days, they used to have to walk from um, from the Chudley Lakes, from most people used to go up Higgs Track and come in from oh, Lake that's, Nameless. That's hard going. <laughs> that's hard going. Yeah. Um, look, it's just going to be great to read this book. It's out on the 25th uh, Wild Heart of Tasmania. We'll uh, maybe have a chat about some of the great characters 
that you bring to life in in the pages when it when it comes out to Greg and and just talk about um, you know the fight to to protect the wilderness. I guess we've always got to be vigilant. Thanks for joining us again. The season, yeah. season doesn't open too far off either. Why does the season in Tasmania open so early in, in August compared to the mainland? The, the trout seasons all over the world don't seem to have much to do with the biology of the fish itself. It seems to have more to do with uh, tradition and precedent. Um, so our brown trout you know, have well and truly spawned by, or by the opening of the season, so there's no problem in opening it. Um, the only thing that I'd caution people who are who are you know, ready to come over and give it a big bash on opening day, is that it's still pretty cold. So you don't you know, the highland um, the highland fisheries, the lake fisheries, definitely aren't at their best. If you're an absolute addict like me, of course you're going to go out there and fish anyway. But if you do come to Tasmania, um, you know, early, in early August, you're probably going to find your best fishing down on the lowlands, like the coastal rivers. Um, the sea trout fishing can be very good at that time. And you know, rivers like the Mersey and the South East system, they, they all fish quite well at that time as well. All right, Greg. Look, it's great to talk to you again. Uh, we'll have another chat when A Wild Heart of Tasmania, the latest book, comes out. I love your book, so it's going to be great to have a read. And if people grab the latest edition of Fly Life, they can find out about that 14-day trek through the wilderness uh, catching trout and uh, hopefully not catching a cold. Yeah, right. <laughs> And they can also do a pre-order. They can also do a pre-order through the um, Fly Life website. If people want to know more about the book, they can just visit malbina.com. So that's it. Tight lines, Greg French. We'll catch you next time on the Big Fish. Okay, thanks, Scott. Be sure as always. The Big Fish on ABC Radio. If you love our marine life, like the turtles and the grain earth sharks and the penguins and the seals and the dolphins and the whales, uh, then you'll be really interested in this story. And it's one that has a lot of people hopping mad. The New South Wales government is calling for tenders for its annual shark meshing program, despite widespread calls for it to be scrapped. Seven regions from Newcastle to Wollongong have been identified for the 2023-24 program that runs from September to April each year. Now, on the central coast of New South Wales, both the Liberal spokesperson for the central coast, Adam Crouch, in the seat of Terrigal, and the Labor Minister for the central coast and MP for Wyong, David Harris, committed to removing the nets and replacing them with technology less harmful and more effective, like drones, smart drumlines and listening posts. Now, when the news broke last year that at least 16 critically endangered giant leatherback turtles had been caught in the nets between Cronulla and Nora Head. Adam Crouch, Parliamentary Secretary for the Central Coast, Liberal member for Terrigal, and at that time in power, said there's overwhelming support in his electorate for the nets to not go back in next summer. That is, the summer coming up. He said there's no need for us to have shark nets on the Central Coast. He said we have far better technology with smart drum lines, drones and listening stations than this antiquated and ineffective mesh net solution from the 1930s, a view endorsed by the now-in-power Labor Party. So why is New South Wales DPI Fisheries still asking for tenders to put the nets back in on the central coast? Caroline Perryman has the story. News about the tender that opened at the end of June came as a shock to many, including member for the central coast, David Harris. We only found out about the uh, tender and uh, got straight in touch with... uh the Minister for Primary Industries. Uh, she got back to me and said that no decision has been made on the, by the government yet to actually put in nets. They're in consultation with 
uh, local government, uh, but the tender has gone out just in case uh, the decision is made to put nets back in. So obviously I'll be talking uh, to her and to her department and find out exactly what's going on. Ronnie Ling from Marine Wildlife Rescue Central Coast says there have been growing calls for the meshing program to be shelved due to its negative impact on marine life. We're looking at antiquated technology. This was around since the 1930s and I just couldn't believe it. It's only uh, two months before the nets, if they go in, are scheduled to go in. You know, we're dealing with the most incredibly dangerous creature in the world here and that's politicians and bureaucrats, not sharks. The worst thing about shark nets are anything that ends up in that net dies. It doesn't matter whether it's a shark, dolphin, stingray, penguin, seal, turtle, you know, they die. And why have we got these out there? Just last month, a report by the Envoy Foundation identified extremely concerning discrepancies in the government's data on shark meshing including a photo of a bird found in shark nets in 2019, not included in data for the 2018-19 or 2019-20 catch data. New technology like drones and smart drum lines are already being used at some beaches to help reduce the risk of a shark attack. Terrigal Ocean swimmer Nader Pantel is among those against the shark meshing program. The Terrigal Ocean swimmers, we don't want the nets. We want them out. They don't do anything except for killing species, safe sharks. Let's face it, we need the sharks. We need turtles. We need dolphins, whales. And that's what's getting killed. And we don't want it. No one wants the nets. Mr Harris couldn't rule out the nets not going in on September the 1st. I can't guarantee that um, it may not happen in, in some form just because of the, we've only got a short time left before uh, they're supposed to be in the water on the 1st of September, but certainly in the longer term uh, we'll be making sure that that science is looked at very carefully. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries has been approached for comment. Caroline Perryman there reporting on the shark nets possibly going back in. Coming up on The Big Fish, Stinker looks at truisms that may not be true. That's on the way on The Big Fish. (laughs)
fish sleeps tonight Hush my darling, don't cry my darling The jewfish sleeps tonight The Big Fish on ABC Radio. Here comes Stinker with his fishing tips. Some hot advice for your fishing trip. Where to find them? What's the bait? Are you catching any, mate? Good morning, Stinker. <laughs> G'day, Scott. My mum used to always say, you can't get the smell of mullet gut out of any clothing. Uh, <laughs> The, the undisputed best brim bait in the world. You can't get the smell of it out of clothing. And the other one, Dad used to buy pineapple tins from Claude's boat shed, full of it. You know those giant pineapple tins in the old days. <laughs> We'd use it for brim in the winter time, this time of year actually. It was it was deadly bait. And and um, the other one is uh, wind in the west. Fishing is the best. Good heavens! Whoever said that needs to be locked up. <laughs> <laughs> That's about as far from the truth as you can get, I reckon. But the mullet, what, the mullet gut one's very interesting. Oh, mullet gut used to be a, a regular. Anyone who ever chased brim would all agree that, that mullet gut. And then, of course, chicken gut come on the market. No one ever, ever thought of using that. And that was deadly bait as well. But my uncles and I and my father, when we fished, uh, on what they call a cotton trees on Greenbank Island at Tweed Heads when I was just, oh, I can't remember. But I used to sit on the bar of the push bike and my father would pedal across onto this spot. And the, the mullet gut that we used was mixed with chicken pollard. That's interesting. Ah, there's something. It made it not quite so messy. But um, the chicken pollard was great burly too. Well, you put the onion on and it'd be on all night. So you had to slither that up a bit. You had to cut that up with a knife and put a little bit of that on and then a lot of the soft stuff. It's the soft stuff that does the damage, you know. That's the good gear, the soft stuff, the messy stuff. But what you say, the onion. Now, a lot of those listening to this program wouldn't know what the onion was. Well, the onion, I'm not sure what it actually did, the onion, I don't really know what purpose it solved in the whole, in the um, digestive uh, system of the mullet. I don't quite know. But it was a hard, round, grisly, nearly as big as a ping-pong ball, and it was really tough, as you say, really, really tough. But um, I met a bloke once, and he said, oh, the best bait for brim. This is another old wise time. He said the best Best bait for brim, no worries, is the onion out of a, out of a mullet. It's like a round and grisly. Mm. I said, yeah, that's true. He said, I've had it on all day. He said, I haven't had to change my bait. I said, did you catch any fish? No. He said, I haven't caught anything. <laughs> I think it was called an onion because it really resembles a, a pickled onion, doesn't it? It's about the size of a pickled onion. It's a sort of a whitey, grey colour. Yeah. <laughs> anyway... 
He said, no, I didn't catch a thing, but by golly, I didn't have to change my bait. <laughs> well, fishing, thought, oh, fishing for some people, they get interrupted by a bite and a fish, don't they? They want to sit there and look at, <laughs> look at the trees and the waves and the birds. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, there are plenty of our wives. But when you say the, the other one that you said, the West, the West is the best for fishing. No way. Actually, I have a proof of that through the week. What day was it? Wednesday it was. It was Wednesday. And I'm at home. I've done all my chores. Everything's done. There's a west northwesterly wind blowing, uh, which is a dreadful wind. It's, and it's still blowing. I mean, it's just, it just hasn't stopped blowing since, really. Oh, on uh, Wednesday it was that I went out. I had to go. I'm, I was sick to death of not going fishing. Um, and I knew it was the wrong wind in the wrong conditions. Um, I always look for a southerly, but uh, there was no southerly coming. So I thought, I all look for a southeasterly, and what was blowing? A northwesterly. But I said, I'm going anyway. <laughs> totally opposite to what I did want. There was a bit of um, rock and roll. So that was, you know, to my advantage. So I jumped into Stink Pot in the corner of the beach and I motored across the bay, Fingal Bay, which is not too bad. Then I got out into the open sea and this howling wind hit me and I'm thinking, oh, this is not much fun. But anyway, I went to my number one gun spot and because of the angle of the wind, I really couldn't anchor where I wanted to be. I tried three times to anchor. And then I realised I was wasting my time. So I searched other spots for fish and I just, look, it was a way. I, I hooked a salmon who tossed the bait back at me, but that was it. Um, so that really wasn't what you'd call a successful fishing trip. But on the way back, I went in under what we call the green hut. There's a hut on Fingal Island. And underneath the green hut, there's a big deep hole that goes down to 60 feet. I used to fish there for Mulloway. But anyway, I put on a, a, a lure, a big spinner, and I, I motored along past the green hut, and I got um, four thumping tailor. One of them was a really big one. One like When I say really big, you sort of look here, it's talking about a kilo and a half. <laughs> That's something that's happened, Scott. The, the, the tailor, which have always been a bit of a problem for me, I'm a bit concerned about tailor, but the big tailor, big tailor, very rare these days. Yeah, but that's a that's not a, a total failure, although I, that maybe that wind in the West fishing the best thing comes from the Northern Hemisphere or something, because I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I've never known the, the, the Westerly to, to be any good at all. It does make the mullet run in autumn, I know that. Oh, yes. The, the, the westerly wind will trigger the mullet run, that's correct, in Easter. Easter and Anzac Day, um, as soon as that westerly kicks in, that's when the mullets start to run out of the rivers and the estuary systems into the ocean and, and move north. Of course, that, that they've gone now. And it's time now for the um, brim and the ludric. That's what's happening now, that, which they call groundfish, and that always follows the mullet. But getting back onto your old wives' tales, I've got a couple here. One, when I started fishing for Mulloway oh, years ago, I was told that really the best way to do it was to fish all night. I said, I'm not going out there fishing all night. But I said, if you want to catch a dewfish, that's what you've got to do. 
Well, it didn't take me long to figure out that that was nonsense. I always fish for Mulloway one hour before dark and two hours after. And I reckon that was the strike time. That gave me the opportunity to catch the live bait and then to, to burly up just before the sun went down. And then when the sun went down, I'd, I'd set my rods with the live bait and burly up and then wait for that two hours. If I got nothing in that two hours, I'd quite happily go home and go back the following night. So you don't have to sit all night to catch duty. So there's, there's, a, few there's a fallacy. That's a, 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 that's a tale that's not true. What, what else have you been told that didn't ring true? Well, there's another one that everyone ever used to say, particularly bait users. I'm a bait user. You know, everyone knows that. I'm not, I haven't moved into plastics. I always said, um, oh, you've got to hide your hook. You've got to hide the hook. If you don't, if the fish can't see the hook, oh, that's better because if fish see the hook, they'll say, oh, there's a hook. And then they wouldn't have a go at it. Well, that's nonsense too. If you can see the bait that I use to catch um, a snapper, where I just pin it through a block of a cube of yellowtail, the hook is totally exposed. It's just pinned through a bit of skin and the bait dangles off the end of it. So if the fish looked at that, they'd say, gee, there's a hook with a bait dangling on the end. They don't do that. They just go whomper and swallow the whole lot. And that's when I've been catching my really good snapper. And then also, Scott, there was a, we went through a period where we were told that the colour of the hook, oh, you had to have these certain colours. The, the red, the red hooks, or, yeah. Or red, you know, because then the, the, the fish lose sight of it. It's all rubbish, you know. It's not true. If you, um, if you go where the fish are and you put down something, a good bait, You'll catch them. Doesn't matter what colour your hook is. <laughs> oh, there's some beauties. I just thought another one, the days that used to catch worms, you know, the old bait, they said, oh, that's got to be rotten and all, and smelly and st-. No, fish and worms and crabs, they like fresh bait. Lobsters and that, they like really fresh baiter. Oh, look, this, I could go through half a dozen more of stories I've been told that really aren't true yeah yeah that's that's the way to do it and, and i guess try it out and, and try it for yourself the the wind in the west the fishing the best throw that one out the window <laughs> that might be a northern <laughs> hemisphere thing hey tight line sticker you have a great weekend don't get blown away and we'll catch you next week on the big fish here is scott oh good day folks now anyone that listens to the saturday morning fishing program on the abc they will have heard of these two characters Bakefish Bernie and Dogfish Dave. Some say he was born while his mum was at sea. Some say he was born down at Circular Quay. He'd rather go fishing than work, rest or play. He's called Bakefish Bernie from Botany Bay. Now Bernie, he met up with old Dogfish Dave. And one day at work they were having a rave Bernie says, Dave, I've caught rim down the coast And I'll catch anything, but I'm not one to boast Old Dogfish, he knew that the challenge was made 
And he's not one to shy from a challenge once laid. I'll catch you a flathead and raise you a brim. In fact, I can catch anything that can swim. So they set off for Eden, the scene had been set. And the tussle was on once the lines had got wet. They hauled and they baited till dawn the next day. Then went home exhausted, their catch to be weighed. The tally was made and the scales don't lie. The result it was posted, it ended a tie. They both were astounded and had a close look. Then Bernie says, Dave, tell me, how do you cook? So much for the waymaster. So off to the task they had set for themselves. And down to the markets they cleared off the shelves. With eggs and with batter, spices and herbs. The feast that they cooked would be truly superb. The locals then feasted till all had their fill. With all satisfied they were full to the gill. Time had now come for the people to vote A difficult task when you're reeling with gloat Oh, stinker, I think I'm going to be sick Me too, strap a hole One of them fainted, another one burst Others had stretch marks the length of their girths Four went to hospital, feeling the pinch Three were removed with the aid of the witch The ruling no contest was promptly declared And baitfish and dogfish were left in despair This must be decided before it strikes dawn We'll sleep on the matter, decide in the morn Back at the camp as the both of them slept The eggs they had eaten had taken effect The crowd was awoke With a thunderous roar As off to the toilet The both of them tore Now a contest was on That could set them apart And Dave gained an edge As he reeled off the fart He reached the latrine And he slammed shut the door And in one big swift motion He settled the score A gold-plated turtle catch of the day. A gold-plated turtle catch of the day. This is the Big Fish on ABC Radio. You all met Libby Hall from the Taronga Wildlife Hospital when she did an amazing job, with her colleagues, of course. It's a big team there to uh, rehabilitate the turtles from the Central Coast that uh, had ingested plastic that people had found that were sick, and nine times out of ten, it's it's plastic bags. So rather than deal with the patients, let's deal with the cause of the illness. Good morning, Libby. Good morning. Is that fair? You know, prevention is better than cure? Oh, absolutely. When it comes to plastic, I think um, preventing it getting into the ocean in the first place is is definitely the way to go. Hence, our chat today. 
Exactly. Plastic-free July. What a great month it is. I wish it was every month. Yeah, for sure. How often do you find plastic is the cause of the uh, the illness for the turtles? Um, all too often, unfortunately, with marine animals. Um, many, 80% of the marine animals are affected by plastic or litter in the oceans. An increasing number every every year, unfortunately. Yeah, we've had those recent case studies of the turtles from the Central Coast and Lake Macquarie that you've been able to save. But, you know, it's just frustrating, isn't it, when we see our, our ocean filling up with plastic. What can we do? What are some of the tips on uh, keeping the animals safe that we love? Well, um, Plastic Free July is a chance for everyone to choose to refuse one single-use plastic item. I mean, of course, you can do more than one, but that's what Plastic... Um, Free July is all about is just choosing to refuse one item and then it can go on from there so taking your bags to the supermarket I think most people have got used to doing that and coffee cups having your own coffee cup rather than choosing one with a plastic lid um, when you go to the the supermarkets to not choose any item that's wrapped in plastic and that has you know any sort of plastic coating at all. Farmers markets of course are perfect because you you don't get any plastic on your items then but there's many many ways that, um, that people can just choose as soon as they see a plastic item um, not to not to purchase it. But also things like our plastic film that you put on um, on your items at home not to choose not to use that, to use um, beeswax or uh, put them in a container instead and just to be aware of those items not to because it's we are still buying plastic and while we're still buying plastic it's getting into the ocean imagine if we all did that it'd really create uh, change wouldn't it i think if everyone did it um, we could create so much change i mean you know um, thousands and thousands of plastic items go into the ocean Every single year in Australia, um, it's not just plastic coming, you know, from other countries. We're creating our own plastic in Australia, and so we can make the change. Every single person can make the change. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go over to the supermarket and buy a glass bottle of soy sauce and plonk it in the kitchen here at work because I'm sick of those little fish things that are made of plastic. It's oh, such a yes. waste, isn't it, to get a few drops of sauce... Yeah, and then we, you've got see some... that, we see them a lot. We see them in animals, um, unfortunately. Do um, you? See, do you? Yeah. We do. We see the lids, the little red lids, and we see the little fish. Um, and we see a lot of balloons as well um, in, inside animals, and not just marine animals. We see balloons in other animals as well that have caused death. There's many, many plastic items, but yes, that's a really good one because uh, this, those little tiny fish... <laughs> A huge problem. Every time we do a beach clean-up, they're one of the main items that we find. All right, let's get rid of those. That can be one little step, but a big step. And, of course, cigarette butts. God, what a insidious piece of plastic. And, and now the World Health Organization has told us um, that they don't do anything to protect people from the, the uh, chemicals in tobacco smoke. You're better off without them. So that's billions of little bits of toxic plastic that we could remove simply by removing those or, or stopping smoking. Yeah, exactly. Cigarette cigarette butts, um, any sort of small plastic. I mean, a lot of a lot of items, including um, 
you know, chocolate wrappers, things like that. They're they're very frequently found in animals. So all this, all the things that are wrapped individually. So if you get, if you have a choice to buy something that is a bag that's got little bags of chips all in there, all wrapped individually, and little chocolates all wrapped individually, like every single one of those, we can stop buying those things. And if we stop buying them then they won't be produced and then they won't end up in the ocean. So yeah. as individuals, we have the power because we're the ones that are spending the money. That's a great tip. Plastic-free July, let's get into it, do something. Uh, thanks so much and hopefully we won't have as many animals in your hospital, uh, the beautiful little penguins and the and the turtles oh, no. that are full of uh, plastic. So uh, Libby, That's right. thanks for promoting this. It's, it's uh, for, for the good of the planet. It is. Yes, it's the whole planet because the ocean is obviously for the whole planet, not just around Australia. So, yeah, it's a wonderful thing to get behind. And, I mean, once you start doing it, then you can do it every day. It doesn't have to be just July. No, let's let's make the start. Thanks for your time, Libby Hall. Okay, thank, thanks very much. Libby Hall there from the Taronga Wildlife Hospital. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio.
Radio. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.